Who in this room is excited because they get to do New Year's resolution? That's what I meant to say. Who in the room is excited because they get to maybe start something new? Any resolution people here? There are some sprinkled throughout us, and they're weird, I know. But they are here. I have never really understood what the New Year's resolution came from or where it was birthed. I, I've actually attempted it a few times myself, and I have failed miserably about, around January 5th. It doesn't last very long. Maybe this way of living first began by people who were looking to make a clean break from their past. That's certainly possible. They've had a rough year, and they say, you know what? Enough with that. I'm going to make a clean break. I'm going to start some new things in 2019. See, what I think that New Year's resolutions came from the really uptight, obsessive, compulsive people who want to start new things but can't do it until they get a fresh new calendar year. That's what I think. And so they cursed us all with this New Year's resolution. Or maybe Google is right and it coincides with some Greek and Babylonian culture resetting kings. Who knows? But regardless, resolutions are a thing. They are a thing. Now, you don't have to be involved. You can be if you want to. I've I've already admitted I'm not a resolution guy. I'd rather try to start something in June because if I can do it in June, I'm happy with myself. But let's say as a church, let's say we wanted to have a resolution. We wanted to start something new. This church is about two and a half years old since we've had our first public service. So we're always trying to learn and grow to be a church that's more conformed to the Bible, to the church in the New Testament. That's pretty much our aim and our goal is to be a faithful church according to the word of God. And so you would ask, what, what, would a, what would our resolution be as a church? What new thing would we do this year that would be for the benefit of us as a church as a whole? And so don't think too long because I already have your answer. I've already thought about it. So here's our resolution. Gotcha, right? In 2019, uh, I've been praying and I've been thinking that as CityGate Church, we would grow in a deeper understanding. We would grasp and we would grow in a deeper understanding of what it looks like to display the true characteristics of a church, the true characteristics of a true church. The church is outlined in the word of God. Now, I am not for one second implying that everything we've done up until this point is not true, okay? I'm not, I'm not calling you all really horrible people, and you know we haven't denied Jesus or anything like that, but of course, as a church, we should always be looking to correct ourselves, realign ourselves, even in your personal lives and as a church as a whole. I mean, all the life of a Christian is to figure out what areas are not in alignment with the word of God and then seeking God's forgiveness and grace and then aligning them with where he wants us to go. So we should never stop correcting ourselves individually and aligning ourselves with the word of God. And we should never stop doing it here as a church. And this is really important for us to keep continuing to grow as a church and learn what it's like to be a local church in the community because we don't want to get caught up into building something here like we have already. You know, God, by God's grace, we're building it. We're working. He's blessing. But we don't want to build something based on our standards or our preferences. That's not why we started this. This church wasn't started because um, a group of people hated their last church experience and we could do it better. That was not at all why we did it. We simply did it because people need to know that Jesus Christ came to seek and save the lost. Amen? That's why we do it. Because people need to hear the message of the gospel. That's why we started a new church. And it's, this is an important reminder for us that we don't build something based on what we want because although we could start this church, we call it church planting, we could plant this thing, start it, water it, watch it grow. It could, be, it could stand for two centuries that in no way implies that it is a faithful church just because it is operating and it is growing. There's plenty of churches that stand for centuries that are not faithful to what the Bible says at all. 
And so we want to be careful as a church not just to say, well, people are showing up and the lights work. That's not it. That's not the end game. So we always want to be correcting ourselves. We always want to be looking at what can we do to align ourselves with what the Bible says and what we are to do as a church. Many churches are planted and they do grow, but they are built to the glory of mankind. They are not built to the glory of God. So church, may that not be here with us. Amen? We got to get ourselves out of the way. We got to figure out what God says in his word, and we got to bless people with his grace. And from the beginning, this church, City Gate Church, was started simply to see more people put their faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's why we started it. We needed people to hear the message that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came and paid their debt by dying on a cross and he rose from the dead, securing their eternal salvation. And that Jesus Christ is in fact the Son of God because God proved it by raising him from the dead. This church was started because there was a group of like-minded people many years ago who lived with this deep, dark reality that life ends. It ends. And it's tough to think about. And we actually don't really like thinking about it. I am with you on that one. We don't like when a loved one passes on. We don't like when a friend or a relative or a sibling or anybody passes on. But friends, we live in a world that is cursed by sin. And the reality is life will one day end. Your life, my life will one day come to an end. And so this church was started so that when our life comes to an end, we're caught up to be with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and not in condemnation in hell. You need to know that. That's why we wanted to spread the message. It's because the wrath of God is against all those who sin. And all, we all once were sinners, amen, before the grace of God saved us. We all were sinners. No one here is better than the person they're sitting next to. Because we are started, we all, I can't do it. We all started equally away from the cross and by God's grace he brought us near to him. The reality of death, the reality of the message that we hold and what the Bible says, it should create a passion within us, a, a gracious, loving, and bold witness for the kingdom of God. It should create in us a desire to work alongside Jesus as he builds his church. And that's important. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So if you're here and you serve, if you're here and you're attending, if you are here and you are inviting, if you are here and you are giving, if you are here and involved in any other way, even if you are just here, let me tell you that we are working with Jesus as he builds his church. And that is a privilege. Amen? That is a privilege to be here. So to kick off 2019, thinking about um, how we define the characteristics of a true church, how we're going to grow to make sure that we're aligned with the word of God. We, um, I made the decision to kick off our 2019 year to be challenged, encouraged, and corrected by the Apostle Paul's letter written to the Christians in Ephesus, the letter of the Ephesians. It's in your New Testament. And so our, our theme for this letter, it's six chapters long, is called Products of Grace. Ephesians, Products of Grace. The word grace is used 14 times in six chapters. So when I say products of grace, I mean I am, I am a product of grace. Anybody with me? Yes. If you're here and if you're a Christian, you're a product of grace. You're a product of God's grace. You see, we cannot state it, oh, we can state it over and over again. I can, I can try to make it more simple. No one here has earned the right, based on what you have accomplished, to be adopted into God's family, to be a Christian. None of you have earned it. None of you are pretty enough or handsome enough to earn it. 
None of you have done the right list of things to earn God's favor. That doesn't work. That's called religion. That's actually demonic. We don't teach people that they should be cleaned up and look a certain way before they come before God. We don't do that. Instead, we're products of his grace, aren't we? We didn't deserve any of it, yet he gave us all of it. He gave us his entire son. And all that Jesus was is now ours. So that in the, in the great exchange, per se, that when you put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus Christ, he takes all of your sin, past, present, and future, and he gives you all of who Jesus was. The perfect, sinless, spotless son of God. That's the great exchange. He takes your sin, you get his righteousness. There is no earning God's salvation. It's a miraculous, gracious gift. And this is exactly what we see in the life of Paul, the letter of the, the author of the letter we're going to be going through over the next few months together. The letter was written about 60 AD. 60 AD. It was written while the Apostle Paul was imprisoned in Rome because he was preaching and teaching people about the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He was imprisoned. They put him in prison. So he writes a few letters for two years and sends them out to the little churches that are set up around the Mediterranean. And this man, Paul, certainly knows a thing or two about grace. He absolutely does. I would say he himself would say he is a product of God's great grace. You see, once Paul, his name used to be Saul, Saul turns into Paul, Paul, Saul, whatever you want to say, whatever one sounds best. He was a leader of the Pharisees. He was the one who taught the law of God, the Old Testament. He had memorized large portions of it, maybe the whole thing. He was a well-connected Jewish leader in the community, and his job was to teach people the law of God, show them how it works out in their life, and then hold them to that standard. All of your Old Testament is what they referred to as the word of God. So he knew that very well. He was powerful. He was well-educated. He was affluent. Yet, yet Paul had a passion, a burning desire, and passion within him to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. That was his aim. That was his mission. That's what he lived for. And so let me, let me just explain that by reading an Another chapter of the Bible, Acts chapter 9. So if you have a Bible, open the book of Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Fifth book of your New Testament. If you have a phone, it's much easier. You just click the word Acts. And so Acts um, kind of details the start and the rise of the early church. That's what you can think of that book. It's, it's a biography of how the church got started and how the church flourished. And it's all the stories about these little churches popping up and, and the word being taught and people coming to faith and the Holy Spirit working throughout the communities. And it's in chapter 9 where we see Paul be completely and utterly changed by the grace of God. So just before I read that, let me give you some context. In Acts chapter 8, Paul, we're introduced to him, his name is Saul. He's overseeing the stoning, the killing of a man named Stephen because Stephen stood up and preached a sermon about Jesus Christ. And so Stephen is killed by rocks being repeatedly thrown at him until he was dead. And off in the corner, Acts chapter 8 records that Saul was there, overseeing the whole thing. And then chapter 9 happens. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, that's the Christians, 
went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if he had found any belonging to the way, that's Christianity, that's what it used to be called. Back then it was the way, right? Anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So Saul's entire life is consumed by squashing this this band of people collected together claiming that this man named Jesus is the son of God and that by worshiping him and him alone, you can have salvation uh, uh, salvation from your sin and you can actually be in a right relationship with God. This is quite offensive to a man like Paul, wasn't it? Who knew all of who God was based on the scriptures that he had. And so he spent his entire life arresting people and murdering them. Maybe not himself, but the goal was to snuff this weird religious thing out. And so we see him traveling, trying to get letters and intercept Christians from where they're going and where they're going to be so he can pull them out of their homes and arrest them. That is, until the grace of Jesus Christ shows up. Verse 6, Jesus says, But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. I love how Jesus gets right to the point, right? Yeah, I'm Lord. Here's what you're about to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And then he responded with, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus. That's a city. His name is Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen a vision A man named Ananias, come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind, to arrest all who call on your name. And Ananias is like, I'd love to be obedient, but do you know who you are sending me to? I don't want to go. If that's okay with you, choose someone else. Maybe someone a little stronger. Maybe someone with some skills. He's going to arrest me if I go to him. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Gentiles being anyone who's not Jewish. Me. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. Final three verses here. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem and those who called upon his name 
And, he's, and he has come here, and he has not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest. So Paul leaves, and he's going to all the Jewish temples proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. Completely different than the chapter before, and everybody's going, isn't this the guy who would arrest us like four days ago? This doesn't make sense. But Paul increased all the more in strength, and he confounded the Jews. He confused them. <laughs> I had to be confused too. He confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ, that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus was the Savior. Church, I don't know of a better person to learn from than Paul when it comes to being a product of God's grace. As we continue to learn and grow together here as a family, I ask you to really rest in trying to understand at a deeper level the grace at which God has given you. Because Maybe all of us weren't hell-bent on committing murder in a former life. Maybe we were. You know what's really amazing? No one is outside the scope of God's salvation. It does not matter what you have done. It does not matter how many wrong decisions you have made. You are not outside the scope of God's grace. If he can save Paul, he can probably save us. Amen? We need to learn how to rest in the grace of God that has been given to us. And then we need to reflect that grace to the people around us, which is, by the way, the hardest thing to do in the world. Amen? Because when people do stuff we don't like, we don't initially lead with grace, do we? No. We lead with preferences. We lead with getting back what was taken from us. We lead with maybe words that are just as harsh as theirs, just so they know who we are and we're going to stand our ground. But all of the Christian life is learning how to rest in God's grace and then give people grace. So as we learn and grow together, may this be something that we grow in this year. Because we need to understand, we need to come to a realization a time and time again that it is by grace we have been saved. You see, the Christian stops showing people grace when they start thinking they've earned it. That's what happens. When Christians walk and talk as though God is better for having them and his family. That's when it goes south. And that's when those Christians make our job much harder. Amen? Because we go to present Jesus to somebody and they say, I know someone like you. And quite frankly, they're just mean. <laughs> now, before you get too down and out on those people, we're all hypocrites, right? We got plenty of room for more in this church. Because we all want to live a certain way, yet our flesh and our desires often lead us astray. But let us always come back to God's grace that he's shown us. Just imagine for a moment how grace can change even your life here today and then the lives of people around you. Let's imagine a home, a marriage. Let's say it is a marriage where grace leads the conversation between husband and wife at all times. I'll say the word perfectly, but we know how, that, how long that goes, right? What if grace led the conversation between husband and wife? Regardless of what the other one just said, what if we gave someone something that they didn't deserve in the conversation, like peace and patience and joy? Because you realize grace simply means getting something you have not deserved. 
So when we say you receive the grace of God, you receive something you have not deserved. You didn't do it. Jesus did it. And we were sinners and we were far from God. So we don't deserve him. We rebelled against him. Yet what does he do? He saves us by his grace. So let's say you're in a marriage. And what if that marriage was defined by grace more than it was not? What would that do to the house? Imagine a family where grace was a part of every interaction between all of the family. Every disciplinary action with the children. What if grace was involved in that action? Even the tough conversations between family members. Imagine how different our families would be if we all led with grace, church, and not condemnation. What if we led with grace and not condemnation? Imagine a friendship where grace was the constant characteristic. The constant characteristic amidst all of life's changes. No longer will friendships dissolve over differences of opinion or lack of communication, but instead, instead, friendships remain strong regardless of life's circumstances because people are gracious towards one another. Because we're giving someone something they don't deserve. You're going to be wronged in this life. If you haven't already, buckle up. But I'm pretty sure we all have. Church, we're called to be gracious regardless of what happens to us. Now, we're not taught that. You're taught the complete opposite. We're called out of the world by God to be holy and blameless before him and be gracious with people. Now take all those things and put them into a community. <laughs> now imagine a community of people characterized by grace. Imagine a community of people characterized by grace. A collection of redeemed people, saved people being gracious with one another and gracious with those around them regardless of how they've been treated. Imagine a church where the Christian is known for how gracious he or she is regardless of life circumstances. Seems like a high calling. It nearly seems impossible, doesn't it? This is why the letter of Ephesians is going to be so important for us to go through. Grace is the constant theme through this letter. Paul, we just read, is a man who has been given grace by God when God should have just smited him and killed him for all the murders he did, right? Paul should have gotten what came to him, shouldn't he? What was he given? Grace. The letter of Ephesians is called the crown and climax of Paul's theology. So Paul writes many letters to the church in the New Testament. One writer would say this is the best letter he has ever written. Another person said it is the, the best communication ever given to mankind. If all of mankind had to read one letter, the person would say, give them the letter of the Ephesians. That's the best form of communication one could ever read. Another person said, never, never anywhere was the reality of God's revelation more obvious, and also the powers of the Apostle Paul and the powers of his mind are more elevated than in the great book entitled The Letter to the Ephesians. You see, Paul was called by Jesus to display the power of God to go tell people about Jesus over the whole entire Mediterranean. And so he planted churches, and he set up churches, and he shepherded churches, and he created leaders in those churches all because of God's grace. So I'm going to start to bring us to a close. Um, 
And I just want to I want to highlight like three areas of the, of the letter. So next week, we're going to dive in to the letter. But I want to give you the letter of Ephesians broken down into three categories. Here's what we're going to cover, okay? Over who knows how many weeks. I usually have a goal, but we will go way past that. Chapters one through fee. One, one through fee. Happy New Year. Chapters one through three. Focus on the wealth. You can think of it as the riches. The wealth we all experience because of God's grace. The wealth that we receive because of our relationship with Jesus. God's grace removes our rags and replaces them with riches. Isn't that a beautiful word, a picture there? Removes our rags and places them with riches. Nathaniel read it earlier, but I'm going to read it again. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why should God be blessed? Because he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Friends, there is a wealth and a richness to a relationship with Jesus Christ that most of us have never, ever understood or have never come to realize. It is, it is the sense of peace in your life when everything is chaotic. It is true joy when the world goes dark. It is somehow how you remain faithful to God or how God remains faithful to you, although you have never been faithful to him. It is God holding you fast and holding you close to him when you're doing everything you can to run away because you're tempted by this and you're tempted by that. We are blessed not with one or two or a select few. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What does that mean? I'll tell you later. Number two. Then you go to chapters four and five. So you think about it, there's six chapters, right? So the first three, are, the first three chapters is Paul explaining how amazing God is. Three chapters of how just amazing Jesus Christ is. And can you blame the guy? He was killing Christians, and now he's one. Not only a Christian, but an apostle given the gifts of the Holy Spirit to advance the kingdom of God. See, don't you think God would have chosen some upright person who was perfect? Isn't that what we tell people? Don't we say, well, man, I, I really do love that person, but they're way too far gone. It would never work. I wonder how many Paul's friends said that of him. Friends, don't give up on people that you want to see come to faith in Jesus Christ. Be patient. Be gracious. God's going to do the work. You can't save anyone. It doesn't matter how good you speak or if you say fee instead of three. It does not matter because God will do it when he's ready. The first three chapters are just how amazing God is. Chapters 4, chapter 5 call us to walk. So there's the wealth, and then there's the walk. We are called to walk the way we live, the way we move and have our being in this life. We're, we're called to walk according to God's grace as one unified body, one unified church. He spends a little time telling us what our life is supposed to be like, how we are supposed to approach our husbands or our wives or our children or our friends or our workplace, how we're supposed to keep busy, how we're supposed to guard our hearts from temptation, he shows us the standard of his holy kingdom. 
And that's going to be a tough one for us, just so you're aware. Because here's the, here's the thing you need to know about the Bible. It's equally offensive to every single person here, just so you're aware. It's going to offend you. And it's going to offend every culture on the planet, which is, by the way, why we know it's from God. It equally offends everyone. No one's off limits. But the way Jesus calls us to walk is going to offend some of you. It offends me because there's things that God requires of you that go, right. Like, I believe in the Jesus thing, but that? That sounds pretty ancient. Do we do that anymore? Now, listen, it's not weird or creepy. I'm just saying. There's some things that are going to offend you. But it's good for us to walk as one unified body. Paul writes this while he's in prison. He says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He says, Church, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the hope, the one hope that belongs to your call. Verse 5, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Church, we all worship the one true living God, the same God. We don't worship different facets of him, or different things that you like about him, and you leave the others out. We are called to be one unified body, worshiping one God. So how do we do that together and maintain unity? Listen, spoiler alert, somebody in this building that you get to know will let you down. And they will annoy you and they will say the wrong thing to you and you will get offended, just so you're aware. How do I know that? Because we're all imperfect people, amen? We're all imperfect people. The good thing is everyone's welcome and no one is perfect in this place. But you know what that takes? And any group that comes together all over the planet, it takes grace, doesn't it? If we're to remain unified, you will have to set aside the offense, seek forgiveness and reconciliation. Don't let me catch one of you not trying to be reconciled. I'll hug you first, and then I'll bring you to that other person. But you know churches, they crumble because they can't be unified. And what good does that do for the reputation of the church? It does nothing good. Because the world says, I thought you were God's holy people. And we're screaming, we are, but we're imperfect. So we have to work hard to maintain this. The good thing is, God's grace will be there for us. Amen? Must be unified. And then chapter 5, into chapter 6 a little bit, talks about the warfare. The wealth, the walk, and the warfare. Something easy to remember about the way the book of Ephes- letter of Ephesians is laid out. And this is what I'm really excited because some guys that are here today think that Christianity is a little bit effeminate, not for them. You stand up and sing. Most churches I go to have pretty paint on the walls. Just ain't for me. I want to go chop wood and kill deer. Like, that's my thing. I really don't want to be in a church because it's kind of emasculating, just to be honest. Yes, there are churches like that. But the warfare that we are called to as Christians should excite all of you, men and women alike. The battle we engage in as people who have been called out of this world, yet still remain an active part of this world, is a must We are engaged in a spiritual battle. And let me tell you, the enemy is everywhere. 
ready to pounce on you and destroy you. He wants nothing more than to see the church not unified, the family crumbling, relationships broken. He wants to leave you in a corner by yourself thinking you've won the fight when nobody else around you. That's what he wants. He wants you isolated, he wants you alone, and he wants you angry. Church, there's a warfare we are engaged in. If you are a Christian, we are engaged in warfare. Here's what he says. Finally, this is how he ends the letter in chapter 6. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I don't think I'm alone when I say the world is pretty dark. Read a newspaper, watch the news. You'll get there really quick if you don't agree with me yet. I cannot wait for Jesus to return and make everything new again. Amen? Therefore, Paul says, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Paul says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I love that language. Hold up your shield of faith. May it protect you as the evil one attempts to destroy you. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplications. To that end, keep alert. Keep alert. Men, I'm calling you out here for a minute. This is for the ladies too. Men, keep alert. We're lazy, okay? That's our default. We will shirk responsibility to be selfish with our time. We will not lead and guard our families from evil. When evil starts to approach our family or a situation, we will not confront and say, not here, not in this house, get away. Listen, we were born to kill a dragon and save the woman. Amen? That's what we were born to do. I told the story in the first service. My boy got in trouble. I think, I don't remember. I got three boys. I forgot which one it was. But he was like two. He made a gun out of a bunny in the nursery. I don't know how he got there. Right? We don't go around waving guns at our house, just so you're aware. But what was he doing? Well, he was going to battle at two years old. And you know what he was doing? He was defeating the enemy. Amen, boy. I love that. Men, we're going to be challenged to put on the whole armor of God and to keep Satan far away. Paul says, and as also for me, pray for me that I may be given to me an opening by my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. This guy is in prison. You cannot keep this guy down. Put me in prison for preaching, I'll preach in prison. You want to kill me for preaching, I'll preach till I'm dead. What does that to a person? I know what it is. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. Verse 20. 19 and then a little 20. Pray for him that when he opens his mouth, his mouth he'll be bold in proclaiming what he stands for. And then he says, for which I am an ambassador in chains. 
I'm a representative of Jesus Christ in chains. Pray for me that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Such a beautiful letter, six chapters, and next week we're going to dive into the first one. And I hope you return. I hope you're anticipating what God has for you as we study Ephesians. I hope you're anticipating the sharp edges he's about to sand down. Pray for peace and patience if you're married or if you have children. Pray for one another this week that you would be gentle with one another as you are convicted and as you learn what God has for you in this letter. If you're single and ready to mingle and out there, I know that just rhymed, so I said it. Pray for your friendships. Pray for the way you relate to God in a personal level, in your own. Pray for the relationships you have at work, the people that really anger you. Pray for the people that are close to you. Because God's going to do some amazing things to this letter. And I'm excited to see what he does. But friends, whenever a church gets serious about following Jesus Christ, the enemy comes to attack. And so let's be on guard for one another. Amen? Let's support one another in this. So maybe you're here and you're wondering what this life is all about. Maybe you're here and your friend dragged you to church for the first time. Great. I actually love that. I love dragging people to church. Maybe you're here and you don't know exactly what you're doing. That's okay because our aim and our mission is to walk with people as they walk with Jesus. We want to teach you the Bible. We want to take our time. But don't wonder about what this life is about any longer because I'm here to tell you what it's about. It's about the person and the work of Jesus Christ in your place for your sin. That's what this entire life is about. Because he saves you, he cleans you up, then he sends you on a mission. And everything that we do as a church, everything that we do individually, is going to be accomplished by what? God's grace. The defining theme throughout this entire book. He gives us what we do not deserve. And then he calls us to a work that we can't even do without him. Just like our prayer time was said earlier, how great is the steadfast love of the Lord. Amen? He doesn't leave us alone. So I need you to have patience with one another. I want you to rest in God's grace. I want you to think about how God's grace relates to you. Then I want you to come back next week, and we're going to get busy in this letter. Amen? I'm going to pray, and then we'll transition to communion.